Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Hello and welcome to Aussies Only. It's your host, Jed Zetzer, and in this edition of the show, I've got a very special guest. Steve Baldus joins me to talk about his incredible journey in the world of tennis, from picking up a racket for the first time at the age of eight and instantly falling in love with the sport. Steve forged an incredible career, both playing and administrating in the game, and we speak to him today about his incredible journey. Steve Thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Absolute pleasure, Jed. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been a while in the making. We've been really keen to get you on. You've got an incredible story, not only in the world of tennis, but in life in general. But as we always do on this show, we're going to start off with your tennis journey. Steve, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you initially got into the world of tennis. Well, I grew up in Adelaide, Australia, um, and uh, um, started off my tennis journey at a very famous club in South Australia called Seaside Tennis Club down on the west, um, in the western suburbs. And I started playing tennis when I was about eight years old, I think. Um, and uh, from the first minute I jumped on the court, I absolutely fell in love with the sport um yeah just everything about it i loved and and um yeah for you know for the first year or so you just couldn't get me off the court all i wanted to do was play tennis and um yeah some of my very happiest memories were of tennis were playing you know at that young age down at seaside you ended up becoming quite a good player you went on to win junior wimbledon and forge a career for yourself in the sport when did you first realize or i guess when did the people around you realised that you were, I guess, better than just the average young junior player? I I was sort of a – I was a good junior. Um, I was uh, number one in the state in South Australia. Um, but sort of nationally, uh, I was sort of, you know, middle of the pack. Um, even at a young age, I've always played an attacking style, so I was, I was a bit of a, a net rusher. Um, even at a young age and it's hard to win when you're, you're coming to the net when you're, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, you tend to get past a lot. So, um, you know, I wasn't really, um, you know, sort of having results that you'd you'd point to having a a long sort of career. And and it was around the age of 15, I think it was, that um, I started to grow. I got, I got taller, um, and and sort of grew into being an athlete, and uh, it was the under 16s where I started to 
have some good results, made the finals of the Nationals, won the National Doubles uh, with Anthony Goods, a very good friend of mine. And, and um, yeah, that was the journey. Got selected in the Australian team that year and went to play in Italy. Um, and again, you know, had some okay results, but uh, was, you know, wasn't the, the best player on our team. That was Brad Sini, who's now living in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, that was the first taste of, of really playing on an international level. So you mentioned under 16s is where you first sort of realized that you were better than the average player and you were um, on the right trajectory. And you mentioned that I guess the growth in your game and your body was the reasoning for that. Do you feel as if these days tennis uh, accommodates for players who are slower at maturing? Or do you feel that that's possibly something that uh, can be handled better at this at this time? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, back then, we're talking about, um, you know, over 30 years ago, and the game was played very differently. The rackets were different. String technology was different. It just it just was a different sport back then. Mm. And, and um, you know, it, it, I had a coach at 16 who, um, Roger Tizer, who's the, the brother of Craig Tizer, who coaches um, Ash Barty and, and, or coached Ash Barty. And Roger was a huge influence in my game. He just taught me to believe in myself uh, to, um, you know, he was a great believer in, you know, the, establishing, you know, th- that confidence that, um, that you could do anything. And, and, you know, that was a huge turning point for me. And I think that, you know, that's true now, then whenever, it doesn't matter what era, you know, when you have a coach that gets a player to really believe in themselves and, and to not doubt themselves, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. And, you know, he, he, we started working together about 15 years old. Um, and then that, that era, you know, the 15, 16, 17 and 18s were, were just, you know, really you know, important in, in not only my, my um, evolution as a player, but just as, as me as a person, you know, I've always um, really had a, a very strong, uh, you know, love of what Roger did for me. Uh, and Roger was a great coach. You know, he worked with Alicia Mollick. He'd spent some time with, you know, Leighton in different capacities. Um, you know, there was a lot of very good players that came through that era. You know, Dayan Petrovic, who's now coaching Jamie Foolis. You know, he's was from South Australia. Um, in that era, there was, there was a lot of great players that came through and, and um, uh, yeah, that was an important time. So, yeah, I think, you know, in, in terms of, you know, now versus then and, and the development of players, I think, you know, it really does start with a coach that believes and, and gets a player to believe in themselves and then, you know, anything's possible. Absolutely, absolutely. And, well, touching on your junior years, um, there was a standout result, 1992, partnered Scott Draper and went on to win the Wimbledon Junior Doubles Championship. Your name's up on the board at the All England Club. It's an incredible achievement. And in doing so, uh, you knocked off Mahesh Bhupati in the final, who went on to become an incredible doubles player, four-time Grand Slam champion. Can you tell us a little bit about that run to the Wimbledon title, was it something that surprised you? Were you sort of expecting to perform well? I'm sure it was a whirlwind. How did that whole fortnight unfold? Well, I was playing doubles with Scott Draper um, that uh, that tour, 
and we had some really good results. We'd, we'd actually won three of the lead-up tournaments leading into Wimbledon. Of the, I think we had five tournaments. So we'd won three of the five. Um, I, th- I think from memory we were the third seeds, but um, on form we, you know, we always felt like we were a good chance. Um, and um, but the week the, the 92 was an incredibly wet week <laughs> like it rained the whole time and um that was the year that um agassi won uh and and graf won the women's singles and um i just remember that because of the rain we actually um didn't end up you know finishing the tournament we ended up having to play three matches on the final day um so you know yeah. The morning of the final, we we had a quarter, our semi, and our final all on the same day, and um, so you wake up in the morning and you're just in the quarters. So you didn't really have. I didn't sleep the night before, thinking you know I was going to wake up and play the final. We were just you know sort of thinking one match ahead, and we played the uh, the quarter was um, on a regular court. Court um, the semi, I believe, was on um, court one or court two but we end up um uh following the shtick um McEnroe who won the doubles that year we end up following that match and that match went something ridiculous like 15 13 the th- in the fifth set we went for forever so you know we've played the quarters we're hanging around the locker room we're following them on uh onto that court after that match we're playing a couple of english guys and then because that took so long, we barely had any rest time. Went straight on for the final to play Mahesh and, and his partner, and so it was, a, it was a kind of an unusual day. Like it wasn't a day that you normally have with you know regular preparation and you know sort of lots of time to think about things. It, it was sort of uh, yeah, it was, it was unusual. But I remember after McEnroe and Stick won the doubles, we were walking out of the locker room and they were walking into the locker room. And they were so pumped. They were high-fiving and hugging each other. It was, it was, it was pretty cool to see. And they beat Renneberg and Rook Grab in the final. And they looked absolutely just devastated um, because, you know, it was that, as I said, I forget the score, but it, no, it was a very, very long final set. So, yeah, it was, it was a, a day where we gave ourselves a chance, but um, we didn't really have time to think about it. And then... You know, you're in the final, and that was the final was a very close uh, match too. It was nine seven in the third, and um, yeah, it was it was pretty tense at the end. But we got up, and, and Mahesh and I are good friends. We um, he went on to play um, college tennis at Ole Miss, and I went on to play college tennis at Georgia. So I would bump into him four times a year when Ole Miss would play Georgia, and I'd always remind Mahesh who who won that final. <laughs> that is brilliant. That's brilliant. It's amazing the connections that you make on the court. Um, do you and Scott's uh, Scott Draper still keep in touch? Do you guys ever sort of reminisce on that on that title? Well, you know, Scott went on to a just a magnificent professional career, and, and I've always been just you know super proud to share that moment with Scott. And you know, we we've been the you know very very close friends over a number of years, and. Um, whenever we catch up, we always have a you know a really good talk and 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 reminisce about you know that whole that whole time. You know, it was pretty magic. 
Um, and uh, Scott's just the best bloke. He's a really top guy, and and um, yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun to share that moment. And that was that year. Um, Lisa McShay and Maya Avertons won the girls doubles as well. So we won the boys and the girls that year. And, and uh, so catching up with, um, you know, we'll catch up with Lisa from time to time. Um, and it was fun to share that moment with her, but you know, it, it's, that's the great thing about tennis that you, um, you get to share these, you know, intense moments in time, either winning or losing. And, and then you, you stay friends long afterwards and, and you're always got that connection. And do you feel as if the fact that you had to play all three matches on the same day, I mean, I know you mentioned that you didn't really have time to even think about it. Do you feel as if that was possibly a blessing in disguise that it all unfolded so quickly so that you couldn't get nervous and, and overthink everything? I'm not sure. It, it, I've never had a day like that ever. So, um, you know, I've never had, you know, three big matches like that in one day in, you know, it was the one and only time I played at Wimbledon. So <laughs> I'll take it, you know, it's, it's um, you know, just the chance to play that was amazing and, and to, to have it all in one day. But I, you, you probably, there's probably some truth in that, you know, I, Wimbledon was always my dream. You know, any Australian tennis player, um, you know, the dreams to play at Wimbledon at the All England Club. And and I was just so excited to be there. Um, I think if I probably went to sleep, you know, playing the file the next day, I, I might not have slept that well. So the fact that, you know, it all, it, it was so many matches that were in a row. Um, it was, yeah, pro- may, may have been a blessing. And regardless, we, we got the win. So um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. And you also featured in the singles draw that year. Um Crazy second round match win over James Greenhog, 15 13 in the third. Do you have any memory at all of that match? Because 15 13 in the third, I'm sure you would have saved a couple matches. It would have been an absolute marathon. Yeah, I, I, from memory, I, I think I served second. So he was always up again going through all that set. So I always had to hold serve to stay in the match. And James is another great guy. I love James and and we we also keep in touch. Um, you know, he's a New Zealand player and and he had a good career and and um yeah, he was a, a big powerful um player and and um I remember it was so intense that match because you know you you're young and you're there and you all you do you want to win and and I remember because it started going so long that all these Aussie um greats started turning up you know i think from, you know maybe roseville was there or roach and there was a there was a you know probably four or five of them just decided to turn up because the match went so long and the big crowd formed and and um you know i was getting pretty pumped up i used to you know get uh you know um pump my fist and, and you know give the old come on from you know after a big point and i remember winning the match and um you know i went over and thanked them all for um for coming and I was feeling pretty chuffed with myself you know I've won 15 13 third this you know epic match and um you know some awesome tennis and I remember saying oh did you you know did you enjoy the match and I remember the feedback I got was yes but you were a little bit too emotional during the match and I was like oh god you know here I am thinking of you know I've won this huge match and I've, I've just been told like I, I was you know giving myself doing me come ons but you know in the moment 
um, it was it was so exciting, and um, and again, you know, I think James, uh, you know, you appreciate being part of the match, but I'm, I'm glad I came out on top on that one. But um, yeah, it was it was a long match, and um, you know, when you think about fifty, was it twenty eight games? That's the three setter um, that we played in that final set. Yeah, absolute madness! What a finish, and no doubt an incredible moment. Steve, following your junior career, you made the move to the States. You mentioned um, going to college in Georgia. How tough was it to make that call to go to college? Was that something that was an easy call for you to make? Did you sort of, you feel it was tough to make that call? The college pathway is is a pathway that I feel really passionate about. Um, Back then, it was sort of frowned upon um, from the Australian tennis community. It was um, it wasn't really the pathway that you would cho- normally choose if you're an Australian player. Um, remembering that back then, you know, there was a lot of um, you know younger players that were uh, at the top of the game. So you know, you were having players, you know, like your Michael Changs and Agassiz and so forth that were breaking into the top hundred and, and getting into the top you know, 20 and top 10 at a much younger age than they do today. And and so, you know, to, to go there as a 19-year-old and play for four years, that was not really the same thing to do. And, and I remember at the time thinking that I didn't understand why. You know, I loved every minute about going to to Georgia and, and um, you know, there were some incredible players that were playing um, at – uh, in college tennis at the time, you know, you know, I remember we made the finals and and of the NCAA's and you know, in the team that we're playing in the final, there's you know Bob, Brian, Mike, Brian, Paul Goldstein, you know, all playing for Stanford, you know, the people that we we're playing against, and you know, it was there was Mahesh Pupati was playing at Ole Miss. There was some awesome players that were were in the college system at the time, so. Um, it was one that I felt really comfortable with. I, I actually really looked forward to being back in a team environment, um, you know, getting an education. It was, uh, it was magic. And, and being part of the, you know, the Georgia Bulldogs, you know, they've got a great tradition. Pernforce, Michael Pernforce played there. John Eisner played there. Um, so it was, a, it was a, you know, a program that, had a lot of tradition, had a lot of great players that went through a fantastic fan base. And, and so, you know, it was a decision I felt really comfortable about and never regretted. Uh, and so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was something that I felt was very special. And, and it, to this day, I, I feel very passionate about um, the college pathway as being a very viable and important option for Australian players that are coming through the juniors. I don't think we promote it um, well enough uh, in this country. I think that um, there's, you know, playing, you know, junior tournaments and leading into, you know, your ITFs and futures and going onto the challenger circuit and so forth. That's at a young age when you're 18, 19, it's a, it's a tough slog. And unless you are incredibly talented, you know, if you're a Nick Kyrgios or a Thanasi Kokonakis and you've got that, you know, just that, elite you know sort of uber talent there's a lot of players that would really benefit from going to college 
and I don't think we do that well here. Um, and I've I've said for years now that I think that you know there's a there's a real avenue that um, you know the tennis community and tennis Australia should be promoting more heavily to get kids into college. And um, yeah, so I know that you know on programs like the First Serve and and so forth, you know that they they talk about that. It's important because not everyone suits going out onto the tour at 18, 19. Some players, um, you know, take a little bit longer to mature. They, um, you know, could, could do with um, a bit more, you know, strength and conditioning and, and learning how to, to, to play the game a bit better. And, and college is, is perfect for that. You know, the average age now of getting into the top 100 is, you know, around 25, 26. So, um you know, to, to have three or four years to learn how to play, um, play big matches on a regular basis to um, not burn heaps and heaps of money, uh, traveling the world and, and, and doing that, I think it's just really important. So, um, yeah, going back to the original question, it was one that I did think long and hard about and one that I've never regretted. It's amazing to see, I guess, the progression and the way that times have changed and now, College tennis, I mean, as you mentioned, it's not promoted anywhere near as much as it needs to be. But do you feel it's promoted more now? I know it's still not where it should be, but do you feel it's on the right track and that this is going to be an option that is not frowned upon as much in the future? I think that it is improving, but I don't think it's being promoted enough because I think you know, especially from Tennis Australia's standpoint, I think that, you know, parents look to to Tennis Australia for guidance. And I think that, you know, there are, I'd say that most of the junior players that are coming out of the junior ranks, they would benefit from time, some time in the college system. I, I believe that 100%. And, and I, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, Jed, but if you, I think if you look at the number of players in the top 100, singles and doubles it's you know it's around that 20 percent of all the players some yeah. somewhere around that and and i might be a little bit off with that um and that's a huge number of players that have been through the college system that are on the the, the pro ranks and yeah that's better than any national association that's better than any program any coaching sort of high performance center you know that that pool of players um, is proven to work. And the reason for it is that um, it puts structure around the player. It, 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 they get lots of matches. You know, I can't remember exactly how many matches I've played over the four years, but it's, I think it was somewhere around that 300-plus matches. Um, so, you know, in four years, you're, you're playing, you know, 75 to 80 matches, singles and doubles over a nine-month period. So, you know, you, you're playing lots and lots of elite tennis against really good competition on a regular basis. You've got your coaching there. You've got your strength and conditioning there. Um, and you're also, you know, at that, those years of your life between 18 and 22, you're learning sort of who you are. And, and, you know, you're maturing. So that's why you see players come out at the other end of, you know, being three or four years at college ready to play in the pros. You know, Rinky Hijikara at the moment coming out of North Carolina 
and within you know a short period of time is you know breaking into the top 200 he might not have done that if you know or it might have taken him four years to get to the same spot but you know he's been in a good place and in a good program all that time you know ellen perez played at georgia and um same with her you know that there's there's examples within the australian system you know astra sharma is another one who went to school in the u.s you know sort of matured and and learned the game and, and have come out even better so i just think you know it's getting better but you know i've got some pretty strong views on you know it being you know a, a really important pathway and i think that you know from uh you know the tennis australia standpoint i think there can be some sort of investment or looking into how do we build a good pipeline into good schools that have professional programs and put some um, sort of structure around that that sort of progression um, and helping parents understand how it all works and yeah I just think it's a really important part of it so um, and and for me you know that period of time in my life, really helped me um, become who I am today. And I've, I've always, you know, I didn't then go on and play professionally, but it gave me the start in my life um, in, you know, the professional world, you know, so the non-tennis world um, that I had. So I'll always be very grateful. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's definitely worth noting is you mentioned some of the Aussie players there. There's been a, a heap that have gone through the college system and, I'm yet to come across one who does not absolutely rave about the system and talk about how beneficial it was for them and their individual careers. And I think, yeah, it accommodates for every type of person that wants to go through the system. You mentioned all the benefits, you know, you don't have to travel um, on your own and, you know, all the high performance um, aspects of it. I think it's an incredible option um, and one that is certainly on the rise in Australia at the moment, which is great to see. Just before we move off the college scene, 1997 ITA Clay Court Doubles Championships. You won that with John Roddick. Can you tell us a bit about that? And have you stayed in touch with John? What's the relationship like there? John is, you know, if he's not my best friend, he's in, he's close to it. it. You know, we we lived together for four years at Georgia, and and um, he's just a, a ripping bloke, and and. You know, when I so when I started at Georgia, I, I literally turned up with it like a couple of suitcases and virtually no nothing. <laughs> I didn't have anything. <laughs> and John and you know his his parents Jerry and, and Blanche just took me under their wing, and they were just the greatest family. And I, I remember, you know, Thanksgiving rolls around and I have nowhere to go, so you know, I get in the car with John. We drive down to Boca Raton, Florida, and, and you know, I spent every Thanksgiving with the Roddicks. Um, and, you know, Andy was, um, Andy Roddick was, I think, 12 at the time and, you know, idolised his brother and he used to, you know, follow us around and just want to hang out with us. And I think we, you know, probably kicked him out of the room a few times and and, <laughs> and whatnot. And and um, so, yeah, the, the Roddicks were just the, the very greatest, you know, sort of, influence in my life they provided me a family atmosphere and and um yeah it was fantastic and and so it just worked out that you know john when he was a freshman uh was a little bit younger and played lower in the lineup than i, I was playing 
you know, one or two in singles and um, number one doubles. John was playing, you know, sort of five or six and, and three doubles. And But he had this, this amazing talent and he started, you know, got better and better each year. And then just so in, our, in my um, senior year, we got paired together. And that was the very first tournament we ever played together. And I remember going in, I thought, oh, I've got no idea how this is going to go. Um, John was a pretty fiery guy and, and not really known for his doubles. And, um, yeah, we ended up winning the tournament. It was one of the, the, the slams that they have uh, for the college um, the college year. And, and John and I, yeah, end up, you know, for most of the year being ranked number one. And the team that was ranked number two was Mike and Bob Bryan. So we were, um, little did we know, you know, that they were going to go on to be the greatest doubles team of all time. And um, anyway, in the NCAAs, they end up winning the NCAAs the year and finishing the year ranked number one. And John and I in the year um, ranked number two. So it was a, it was a great, year, uh, you know, great time in my life for that. And, and, you know, do we keep in touch? I actually talked to John today. So we, we probably talk every, you know, every couple of weeks and, um, yeah, we often we just, you know, we get on the phone, we'll just talk about sport or other times we'll have deep, meaningful conversations. But he's just, uh, yeah, someone that's very important to me. It was, a, it was a really fun week. Incredible, incredible. So, Steve, after your college journey, you stuck around in the States for a little bit as you, I guess, embarked on life after college. Can you tell us about that period and before you came back to Australia, what that period was like in the States? Yeah, I lived in the States for 13 years um, and I lived, you know, I was at Georgia, um, obviously, for four years. And then um, I really wanted to get into a um, career in finance and I um, I had coached Diaz was very, um, the coach of, of University of Georgia. He was very understanding and I did a internship actually between my junior and senior years um, for a Wall Street firm called Newberger Berman and, and um, so I lived up there for a, a summer and sort of you know, worked and trained and, and, and did that and which led to me getting a job with um, the company and, and moving to New York. So my first job out of school was um, in in New York and and um, yeah, so I was away then on my, my path in, in working in finance and uh, you know New York was you know just a fantastic place but I had probably the worst apartment you've ever seen getting getting an apartment <laughs> in New York was 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 a nightmare and I just luckily found this place and it was a, a walk up. So I had to walk up, you know, four flights of stairs to get to my apartment. There was no central air, no central heating. It was freezing in winter and boiling hot in summer. But, you know, I was 22 or so at the time and um, living in New York City. So I didn't care and I barely spent any time in the apartment. I was just cruising around, living the life and, and enjoying myself. But, um, yeah, I, there's no way now being 48, I'd ever live in that apartment. It was just, it was a bit of a nightmare. But um, yeah, so that was where I started and then lived there for a while and then moved back down to Atlanta um, and lived there for a while and then um, ended up, the last place I lived in the US was Houston and I was there until 2006. So you come back to uh, Australia in 2006, obviously back home in Adelaide and can you tell us about, I guess, 
what it was like coming back to Australia because 13 years is a long time. It's a lifetime and, you know, you come back home, things would have obviously changed. Um, how was the transition back to life in Australia? I moved back. Um, my parents were having some health issues, so I moved back. Um, I, I sort of knew that if I stayed any longer, it would be very difficult for me to come home. And I, I wanted to to come home and, and spend time with mum and dad who were getting older and, and there were some other, you know, said health issues. So I moved back and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. Um, you know, all my experience and time and networks and connections were in the US and I've moved back. Even though I moved back to my hometown, um, you know, I was starting completely from um, from scratch. So I thought, well, <clears throat> what am I going to do? So I thought I'd get an MBA. So I went back to school. And I remember um, the MBA program at the University of Georgia, oh, sorry, the University of Adelaide, sorry, um, was a night program. So it was, it was for people that worked during the day and then they would do their, you know, three hours of lectures in the evening. So, you know, I, I rock up to um, University of Adelaide and, and do my MBA program. And I remember the first, I used to catch the bus from home to um, the city to do these classes. And after my first night, you know, session of night classes, I, I went down to um, get my, uh, catch my bus and it was the weirdest experience because I'm in the middle of the CBD on a Monday night and the place is absolutely deserted. There was no one around. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, what have I done? You know, I've come from Houston where it was, you know, 5 million people, the place is pumping, things were happening, you know, sort of around the clock. And I've come back that late. It was very quiet. And um, I thought, gee, what, what have I done? But um, you know, doing the MBA was a, was a, the right move at the time. It, it sort of helped me get back into life in a, in in Adelaide, and um, and then yeah, that do, through doing the MBA, um, end up getting a job with Macquarie. So yeah, my first job back in Australia was with Macquarie Bank. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely a shock to the system as a you know thirty two year old and coming from a huge city like Houston, Adelaide was a little sleepy for me at that time. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big change from Houston, let alone even New York, where you spent some time, it would have been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, you mentioned you spent some time at Macquarie. Can you tell us about how you first got involved in the sport industry, um, I guess, in a working capacity following your time at Macquarie? Um, is it something that you were always keen to do getting into the sport industry and how did that opportunity come about? Well, I, I did, hadn't really, it wasn't really a plan. I, I moved to Sydney for a while and met my um, now wife uh, and we moved back to Adelaide and um, I had spent some time working for um, MLC and, and through the NAB and, you know, I got married and my wife was pregnant with our first child and I remember having this um, conversation with her where I, I don't know, I think the fact that we were having our, our first child and that I remember saying to her, I just really wanted to do something with my life that I was really passionate about, that I wanted to do something that 
um, you know, when my child was older and I talked about what I did with my life that I wanted to, to tell when you were having a girl, I wanted to tell her that dad did something he was passionate about and he did something that made a difference and something that he was, you know, really invested in. And while my job um, with, um, you know, NAB and MLC, was a, it was a great job, great people and loved the experience, but um, it wasn't doing that for me. And uh, I remember Ali McDonald, who was the Tennis SA CEO before me, um, he went on to um, become the CEO of Tennis New South Wales. And I've been catching up with Ali sort of on and off for probably about a year. I've been friends with Ali since we were young kids. I remember the first state tennis tournament I ever played. I entered the under 10s as a nine-year-old and won my first few matches. And then I played this kid, Ali McDonald. And he was 10 and I was nine. And he absolutely put the biggest beating on me of all time. He beat me six love, and I've I've never recovered from that that match. But <laughs> he's a he's a he's he's a ripping guy and a, and top guy, and, and and we've been friends ever since then. And and I used to catch up with him and just talk about you know what he was doing at Tennis SA and the differences he was making and the the impact on the sport. He was a, a fantastic um, CEO and at tennis, and I actually did one of my MBA assignments um, on Ali. So it was a leadership assignment and I remember interviewing Ali and doing my report on Ali. So, you know, I've always been really keen on what he's what he was doing. And then when he left, I remember thinking that, um, well, you know, it's amazing that that um, if, if I could end up being in that role. And, I, you know, I wasn't sure if they would want someone with my background. I knew that I had the tennis background and I knew the sport but I'd been out of sports administration and I was in the finance sector, so I wasn't sure. And yeah, and then I was um, fortunate enough to to get the role, and my life changed at that point. You know, in, in my professional life, it was exactly what I was hoping for. You know, just being back in the sport that I loved and it had given me so much. You know, um, it was it was just a um, it was the right time in my life and it, it changed my life. You know, it was, um, and I've, I've used this um, sort of story before, you know, when I was um, uh, working in finance, I would wake up on a Monday morning and I would be thinking about Friday. You know, I'd be thinking about the weekend and that's no way to live. You want to... You know, you want to get up. And when I was at tennis, so I'd get up on a Monday morning and I couldn't wait to get in the office. It, you know, it was hard work, but, you know, it was, you know, I was passionate about it. You know, I was really, I was really into everything we were doing. And, and, um, and, you know, that's what you want in life. You want to find something where you wake up on a Monday morning and you can't wait to get to work. And then, you know, the weekends are a bonus. You know, and and that's what I had there, and that's what I've had since then. You know, working um, in in sport. You know, it's it's the thing with sport is that people are so passionate about it. Not only where you work, but the people that you deal with as well. Um, and you know, you know, tennis to say was a, a great a great place to work, and we did some amazing things there. You know, during that time, 
you know, we had a, a fantastic team of really motivated, um, hardworking people that, um, that were fantastic at their job. We had a great culture, um, you know, and I still keep in touch with you know, most of the team uh, that I worked with when I left. You know, that was a, um, a very sad day for me. But, you know, during that time, we had some huge projects that we worked on. You know, we, we, um, we worked on, uh, we got $10 million from the federal government for the complete refresh and, um, you know, the, the re sort of uh, allocation of the courts um, in the back of Memorial Drive. You know, we got additional funding uh, of $10 million to build the roof at Memorial Drive. Um, we did the strategy and the master plan for the redevelopment of the centre court. You know, we, we, we got all those projects, you know, um, uh, which completely has changed the sport in this state. You know, that's led to, you know, the Adelaide International coming here and Davis Cup coming here and, and Memorial Drive being, you know, it's being back to its, its glory. You know, it's going back to just the mecca of tennis in South Australia. And, um, you know, being a part of that time to help do that was really special, you know, and, and you know, sort of going back to that conversation with my wife about being able to, you know, talk to my daughter and now we have a son about what dad did during that time, you know, when they were, when they were babies and when they were, you know, young children and to be able to take them down to Memorial Drive and for them to be able to see um, the redevelopment, the courts there. You know, I took, uh, I took Sophia and Harry to the LA National to watch Ash Barty play and, you know, it was just sort of surreal just sitting there and as a fan no longer being uh, directly involved with Tennis SA and just sitting there and, and watching her play on that court under the roof, you know, in a major event like that uh just you know it was um really special and the, and harry and sphere had no idea <laughs> they don't know they don't know what dad did but um you know i was quite emotional sitting with them and sharing that moment with them um to have you know the number one player in the world playing in adelaide in that tournament yeah it's 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 incredible you were involved in such a special time for tennis in the state. And I think you definitely brought the life back to the sport in South Australia and did an incredible job with Memorial Drive. And yeah, just involved in such a, I guess the word is historic period for tennis in, in South Australia. So you can be extremely proud of the work that you did in that period. Um, Steve, can you talk about, I guess, the next transition in your career? Because you moved away from tennis South Australia um, you got involved in the cricket landscape, um, an incredible role GM at the Adelaide Strikers, and then you had a role at the South Australian Cricket Association. How was that transition from one sport to another? It was it was a it was a challenge. You know, it was it was a, a very um, a different sport and 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 sort of different sort of um, you know the the. You know, I came from a sport where, you know, in tennis where I knew all the people and all the clubs and, you know, kind of walking into that job, I was walking into sort of a place I felt very familiar with. And, um, you know, the, the opportunity to join Saka and the Strikers was one that I thought about, um, you know, for a long time. And, you know, I'd been at, at Tennis to Say for, 
um, it's about eight years, I think, at that stage. And, um, and you know, it was just looking for that new challenge. And, you know, running, you know, being involved with the strikers and running the strikers and, and you know, being involved in, in you know, the test match, the Adelaide Oval. And, and you know, that time uh, was, you know, a, a really um, interesting and, and great experience, you know, and, and um, it, you know, it didn't last for very long. We, you know, COVID hit and things changed with, uh, you know, all sports at that stage. And um, so it would have been nice to have been there for longer. And but you know there were um, you know things that that uh, were out of everyone's uh, control, and the world the world changed at that point. You know, and sport became very different. And um, yes, yeah, so that led to another change for me. One that uh, you know I would have probably preferred to have been there for longer, but um, understand and and um, know that. Uh, it was, um, you know, unavoidable. So, um, and then, you know, that led to uh, another kind of very special time in my life where, you know, I went to, uh, you know, look for that next uh, where to from here. And, and that's when I uh, went to work as the advisor to the government on sport, wreck and racing in South Australia. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, COVID, incredibly difficult time for everyone, especially sport, which was basically put on hold for a period of time there. Um, just before we get to what you're doing now, you did mention there the next transition for you. Um, can you talk about that very quickly and how it maybe led to, I guess, the next phase in your career, which is now as the CEO of W Sports and Media? Yeah, you know, it... Um... Working on Memorial Drive and, you know, working closely with um, the Premier, Stephen Marshall uh, and uh, Corey Wingard, who was the sports minister, you know, we uh, had, you know, I'd formed very good relationships with, with them and, and uh, so, you know, it was very, fairly easy for me to, to sort of walk into that role and, and that t- it was, you know, very it's very interesting because once we went from one extreme to the other, because at the you know sport was going through this stretch where you know revenues were down and no one was playing sport and it was you know the whole world was kind of grinding to a halt and but you know going to work in, in government and advising the government on sort of strategic projects, you know there was a sort of mandate to to you know invest in infrastructure. And to spend money to try and get the economy going again, and not just for that reason, but you know, South Australia had, you know, had let there was a lot of projects that needed to be done in South Australia. Memorial Drive being one of them, you know, that that was being done. Um, along with you know, there was um, the work needed to be done on on renewing um, Netball SA Stadium where the Thunderbirds play, you know. Um, um, Cooper Stadium, where Adelaide United was playing, had, had sort of got gone past its use by date. There was a need for a new basketball centre. Um, you know, football being soccer didn't have a home. You know, there, there was all these huge projects that that needed to be done, and um, so you know, I was involved in sort of putting the plan together and 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 guiding that whole investment um, strategy. We end up spending. 
uh, and investing about $400 million into different projects uh, around the state. So, you know, sort of being involved in, you know, make, helping make decisions around what projects and, and, you know, how to fund those projects, how to make decisions around, you know, where priorities should be and, and so forth. And it wasn't just the big um, projects. I mean, there were um, a huge investment into grassroots infrastructure, you know, um, the big push for, you know, lighting um, on ovals and tennis facilities. There was a lot of money spent on resurfacing tennis courts, um, you know, a lot of work at community football grounds, community cricket grounds. So, yeah, you know, to, to be um, involved in really, you know, refreshing the entire sports infrastructure of South Australia um, is something that I've been incredibly proud of. Uh, so yeah, there was a. I was there for about eighteen months, and um, yeah, they were again projects that I've taken immense pride in, um, and I'm glad that you know while I was involved in one big project in, at Tennis SA, to be involved in sort of guiding a lot of also big projects, but in other sports, you know. Um, so you know, sports like as I said, um, you know. Uh, netball, basketball, soccer, uh, you know, cricket, football, um, AFL football, you know, that was a, um, a time where I don't think we'll ever see again. I don't think you'll ever see that much investment in grassroots um, sporting projects again because that was a time that that needed to be done for various reasons and it had been left for so long. So those, those projects are now, you know, they're fit for purpose for the next 40 years. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, a very um, fulfilling time. Yeah, incredible. I mean, to be at the forefront of so much change is, yeah, once again, something you can be very proud of. Um, Steve, your next move, which is landed you in the role that you are currently in, CEO of W Sports and Media. Can you tell us about this role and, I guess, what it entails? Because you've had now a variety of different roles in sport. How does this one compare to the others? And yeah, for those who are tuning in and, you know, might want to know what a CEO of a sports management um, and talent advisory firm gets up to on a daily basis, can you give them a bit of an insight into what you do? Yeah, well, we, as, as the name suggests, you know, we manage um, uh, athletes, uh, media personalities and musicians, their um, their sort of their careers, and and guide them, you know, through um, contract negotiations, through sponsorship procurement, through um, advice on public relations matters, on you know social media strategy. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of look after the entire careers of the athletes and, and, you know, media and musicians that we look after. We, our profile, we've got about 75% of our clients are professional athletes. We've got about 20% are media personalities and we've got a small but growing, um, sort of stable of musicians that we look after. And, um, you know, this is, I've, I've, I've found my passion again in, in life. You know, this is. Um, you know, a, a job where I don't even think I work anymore. You know, um, I still need to get paid. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's that I 
like I feel that um, work is 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 fun in some ways. That you know, I love the um, I love working with our athletes. You know, I love getting involved in solving problems for them. I love sort of getting them involved in 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 wonderful big projects. You know, this year we. Yeah, we've got such an incredible stable of, of clients. You know, we have Leighton Hewitt, we've got Eddie Betts, we've got Kyle Chalmers, we've got um, Daria Seville, Ash Gardner. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, we've got, you know, this incredible stable of talent. And I feel so fortunate to um, be a part of working with them, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a business that's, that's growing Quickly, I think we've got a, a magnificent reputation in the marketplace, uh, and uh, you know it's it's fun. You know, we we have uh, you know in Adelaide, being in Adelaide, the Crows and Port. You know, we've got you know Charlie Dixon and Tom Jonas and Razio Fantasia on on the Port side, and and then on the Crows, we've got um, you know Brody Smith, um, Matt Crouch, um, MJ Ranchich, and and um, Amber Ward on the Crows. So. You know, showdowns are very different for me now because I've, you know, I, I go to them. We've got players on both sides, and um, and you know, they're they're all just fantastic people. And and tomorrow night I'm off to the Adelaide Oval. There's a an event that um, Tom uh, Jonas is speaking at. You know, being the the um, captain of Port Adelaide, and Brody Smith is talking at as well, being the captain of. Um, of the Crows and MJ is going to be there as a um, Crows premiership player. So, you know, just, that's just, I love it, you know? So it's, it's just something that, um, again, I, I um, feel incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. And it's a job that I just can never see myself leaving. I, I love um, everything sort of about it. It's, it's a high, um, it's very high paced. There's a lot of pressure involved whenever you're dealing with um, you know athletes of that caliber, but um, highly rewarding. Yeah, I mean, once again, so you've moved from from career pathway to career pathway that's led you to this moment. Do you and you know you've just said this is sort of where you see yourself for the foreseeable future. Um, but if I were to ask, what's next for you? What what is the main goal for you going forward? Have you had a chance to even possibly think about? A goal in life. What's what's next for Steve Baldus? <laughs> well, always my number one priority is my family, and um, you know my daughter is now ten, and my son is now seven, and you know they uh, are at St Ignatius, and you know loving life, and you know they're um, just you know they love being part of the school community, and, and they're both blossoming into these incredible people, and. Um, you know, so, you know, being a part of that journey, I think is, you know, so special to be a part of that and, um, you know, and, and, you know, to raise my wife, we've been married now 11 years and, and, um, you know, the, you know, being, you know, you get to do all this incredible stuff in your career and you get to be part of these big projects and, and whatnot. But the, the really key thing is when you come back, um, and you come home and, you know, your kids don't care about that. They don't care what dad does. They just want dad, you know, and, and um, you know, every Sunday morning I get up 
and the kids will wake me up. They like their pancakes every Sunday morning, <laughs> you know. So, you know, that's it. Like in their mind, the most important thing that is in the world at that stage is dad's pancakes on a Sunday, and that's a huge leveler. So, you know, you can get too carried away with thinking about what the future is going to be, and um, I'm just happy, you know, in, in my current role. I'm happy, you know, being a part of seeing my kids grow up. Um, I'm really content. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, in a good spot. So, you know, that's the, the main priority in, in terms of, you know, work. Um, you know, I just just want to see our clients succeed. You know, it's it's um, you know, they're it's it's been really fun for me to you know, I, you know we have a, a really incredible stable of tennis talent and and you know got to go to Wimbledon this year with them and you know it was just going back. You know, it's the thirty years since I played there and and you know just being back there. Um, realizing that none of the players that we manage were born when when I won in 92 was a bit confronting but um so I've got no idea about you know that, that I even played there but you know it was it was just such a cool experience to see um Jason Kubler make the fourth round being on the biggest stage you know the the fourth round match was on court 1 um play, playing Taylor Fritz you know that's that gives me a buzz just being a part of that and, you know, when we watch, you know, our AFL footballers, you know, kick a goal on, on TV, I, I just get that huge rush and, and buzz as well. And, you know, we've got, you know, not just tennis players and AFL we've got cricketers, we've got, you know, A-League soccer players, we've got Olympians, swimmers, track and field, athletes, you know, we've got this, you know, rowers, we've got, um, you know, a huge breadth and, of, of talent. But, you know, it is, um, it's always fun given my background in the sport, you know, playing, uh, you know, in, as, as a junior and you know, playing college tennis and, and being involved in tennis and say, it's always fun for me to, to be a part of watching, you know, even this year, you know, Daria Seville, you know, we, you know, she started the year at 600 and now she's at 70 and I think she can, you know, the sky's the limit with, with Dasha, you know, she, she could be anything this year. And I spoke to her today. She's, um, playing a, a, a 60k in the Bronx, so she, I'm not sure that was on the on the itinerary when she started the year. But you know she's there and and you know getting ready for the US Open. You know you got um, all of our players are, are hopefully gearing up. You know seeing Jamie Foolis, you know come from 300 odd to now being you know um, you know 140 odd. So um, yeah, it's just fun and and great to see them succeed. So I guess Jed, you know the the main priority is you know, my family and then um, in, in work, just riding the wave and, and hopefully, you know, helping our awesome, um, you know, um, clients and talent succeed. Yeah, it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. And I love, I guess, your ambitions in life at the moment and putting the right things first, um, being family and yeah, just the passion that you have on a day-to-day basis is is really admirable. So Steve, it's been great to hear your story. Really appreciate you coming on the show and we'll no doubt do this again in the future. I'm keen to catch up again and and hear how you're tracking. Uh, thanks, Jed. I've probably spoke too long, but I've really enjoyed <laughs> Definitely not. Um, just, just talking about stuff. It's brought back a lot of really good memories. It's great to hear. Steve, thank you so much. Cheers, mate. 
Steve Baldus there. What an incredible journey he has had in life and in the world of tennis. Be sure to head back and tune into any previous editions of the show. And thank you so much for tuning into this week's edition of Aussies on The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win it. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free, and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.